Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness. It's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. Thanks so much for listening. If you're a regular listener, some of what I say today will not be surprising, but will have some uh, new information wrapped around it. If you're new to the show, uh, you might be surprised at some of the stuff I say that might be a little unpopular, but that's okay because uh, one of the reasons we do Vitality Radio is to shake things up a bit and give you a perspective that maybe you don't hear in uh, mainstream media out there. So, okay, so today on Vitality Radio, I am really excited. Last night at about 8 p.m.-ish, I didn't know what I was going to talk about today. Now, that's probably less probably more common than I'd like it to be. Oftentimes, in the middle of the week, something will pop up and I'll be like, okay, I know what I'm talking about this week. Uh, But many times, I'm uh, doing all the other stuff I do all week long, and Saturday or Friday night rolls around and it's like, ah, I guess I ought to think about a radio show. Well, I got a text message uh, from a friend of mine that uh, gave me a great idea for a rant. And so we're going to talk about that. And uh, for some reason, I was inspired to uh, talk about another topic, too, that uh, just kind of popped into my head. And this whole show just came together so quickly. And I'm so excited about it because I think it's going to be really, really great information for you. We're digging back into my memory bank. So when I first had my first children, I've got a 20-year-old. She's Heck, she's almost 21, unbelievable, and an 18-year-old, as well as my younger ones who are 8 and 5. And uh, we're going all the way back to when they were little and uh, remembering some discussions that I had and some pretty strong arguments that uh, occurred between me and their mother about what we were going to do about their health. Because, you know, when you're a young parent, you don't know what you're doing, I think, is, is, you know, I I was watching, (laughs) I was watching Arrested Development earlier in the week. And uh, they were talking about, uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen that show, but, uh, and I'm not, I don't know all the names, but the, the mom on the show, she said, you know, Parenting doesn't come with a handbook, and then uh, the narrator says, "Well, uh, actually, there are hundreds of thousands of handbooks on parenting. You know that you can get. Well, you know what I mean. When you're a parent, a first-time parent, especially baby number one rolls around, it's like, oh my gosh, I got to take care of this thing now. What am I going to do? And my uh, rant is going to talk a lot about things that we do as parents." But also, even just to ourselves, when it comes to health, simply out of a lack of knowledge that there's another option or an alternative, and oftentimes out of sheer fear. I'm going to do this because I'm scared if I don't, something bad's going to happen. 
I'm going to shed some light on those thoughts here in just a little bit. And then I'm going to talk about chronic infections. Now, this topic came to my head because I had two wonderful ladies, uh, both in their uh, later later uh, years in life. One of them, I think, was in her mid-60s, maybe to, to early 70s. The other one told me she was 80 years old. And they both came in asking me about urinary tract infections that were chronic. One of them said, I can get one every month if I want to. Now, I'm, obviously, she didn't ever want to, but she said, this happens to me you know, constantly. And if I'm not extremely vigilant, even if I am sometimes, I'm going to get one. And she talked about how anatomically she had some issues that made it more common. And so she just kind of thought she had no choice but antibiotics each time. And I talked to her about some alternatives and some things she could do. And I think that one of the things that is probably the most frustrating to people who deal with this chronic infections, and I'm not just talking about urinary tract infections, but sinus infections, ear infections, especially in kids, uh, strep throat, uh, pneumonia, bronchitis, you know, whatever it is where you've got that kind of weak spot that every year the same thing hits you over and over again or sometimes all year long, or maybe it doesn't ever go away like chronic sinusitis where maybe you'll have a bout of it for 12, 16, 20 weeks or longer. Uh, those things would drive you nuts. And I've talked to so many people who have these issues with these chronic infections that in many cases have created the issue for themselves simply by not knowing what they need to know to keep these things at bay and actually have created a situation where they're worse off than they would have been had they just known a few things the first time the infection occurred. So that's going to be the primary topic. We're going to talk about chronic infection. If you do not have any chronic infection issues, I don't. I think you'll still find this very fascinating. And I bet you, you've got somebody that uh, you care about that does deal with this kind of stuff. So listen up, and, and there's some information here for you that'll be extremely useful anyway. And then uh, at the very end of the show, I'm going to talk about something that I think is super fascinating that will save you a bunch of money and make it easier to eat healthy. And it is something that you'll have to invest 10 bucks in. So I'm just going to tell you, it's going to cost you 10 bucks. But if you're willing to spend the 10 bucks and take the challenge, you will find that it'll be easier to eat healthier, a lot easier. It'll be more economical to eat healthy and it'll be more fun. All because of this one little thing that I'll talk about at the end of the show. Okay, so there's your preamble. Now we're going to get into it with the rant. And uh, yeah, you know, every week, every single week, something pops up on my radar, oftentimes more than one thing, many times several things, heck, twice in the 10-year history, almost 10-year history of Vitality Radio. I've done shows that have been exclusively rants. Today's not one of those days. But yeah, something hit me last night at 8 o'clock that made me want to rant, and it's time for the morning rant. In a world full of often confusing messages about health, let Jared be your guide through the smoke screens of corporate greed, media bias, government ineptitude, and propaganda. When you see what is really happening, you'll be ranting too. 
It's time to expose the hidden agendas. It's time for the truth. It's time for the vital rant. Okay. Fear. 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 It should be saved and reserved exclusively for October 31st. Because it's such a devastating emotion. Fear. You know, some people like it. I think there's a new movie out. It's like the 28th version of Insidious or something like that. I only know because my son told me his girlfriend wanted him to go. And uh, he doesn't really like that kind of stuff. Uh, And I don't. Horror movies are just not interesting (laughs) to me at all. And it's not because I have nightmares or anything. I just think, frankly, they're kind of dumb. Now, there are some movies that are scary that I really, really like. But fear, when it comes to real life, real life stuff like health, can be devastating. You know, I don't want to underplay this because it's a big deal. Um, And it's very easy for us to get caught in this trap of fear helping us, or let's say guiding us in the direction we'll take when it comes to health, and what do they say? Knowledge is power, right? In the, in the vacuum of knowledge, if there is no knowledge about what to do, and all there is is one half of the uh, information being disseminated to us through government agencies, healthcare professionals, or whatever else, then it's very easy to follow that path and uh, just move along the line because we're scared that if we don't, something bad's going to happen, especially if we're parents and we're worried about our kids' health. But is fear ever a good idea? to, to is, it, is it ever a good idea to let that dictate what we do when it comes to our health or, frankly, anything else in life? I think, yeah. If you're being chased down by a tiger or if there's a car rushing down the street and you're scared you're going to get run over, then absolutely let fear take over. Let the adrenaline flow and jump out of the way. But aside from that, take a little bit of time to get educated so that you don't have to let fear dictate your decisions when it comes to your health or the health of your family. How does fear impact our health? Okay, so last night I uh, got a text message about the flu. We're smack in the middle of flu season, right? It's middle of January, and about August rolls around, and we'll start seeing all these signs at every Smith's grocery store, Walgreens, Walmart, every place you can possibly imagine that might have hypodermic needles on hand saying, get your flu shot. And the CDC and the World Health Organization and your doctor and the health department and your company that you work for and all kinds of other places are going to push this thing on you. And they're going to say things like 200,000 people are hospitalized every year with the flu. Don't be one of those people, right? That's, That's about what they say. In fact, that's exactly what they say. And yet... I'm here to tell you that this fear-mongering that happens when it comes to the flu shot is only just a small piece of how we allow fear to inform our decisions when, in reality, there's no education behind it. There's only what I would consider to be propaganda. So, 
this conversation I was having, it was just a couple of texts back and forth. And uh, she's in the healthcare industry. And uh, she talked about uh, how, you know, she'd seen uh, several people uh, that had died uh, due to complications of flu. Now, she works primarily with uh, home health and hospice. So we're talking about people that are dying of something uh, and then they end up dying from complications of the flu. And, And frankly, most of the people that die from the flu in this country are either very old, the elderly or very, very young. Uh, people whose health is already compromised, or in the case of the young, not they haven't uh, been here long enough to get their immune system up and humming uh, to the point where they can fight this kind of stuff off. But the propaganda surrounding it, I've already talked about this on the show a little bit, so I'm going to skim through it real quick, is kind of crazy. The CDC has promoted the flu vaccine for years, promising that it is effective at preventing illness in 70 to 90% of all cases, adding that type A and B influenza cause over 200,000 hospitalizations and 36,000 deaths in the U.S. every year. In April, however, the CDC had to backtrack and instead had to admit it was wrong. For years, the CDC guessed these numbers, taking influenza-like illnesses such as pneumonia, respiratory and circulatory diseases caused by other viruses or bacteria into account and lumping them in as flu, which they are not. As reported by Vaccine Impact, there were about 37,000 Americans hospitalized for influenza in 2014, not 200,000. That's five times less the number, actually almost six times less the number than CDC has been using to create fear and make all Americans get their annual injection. Furthermore, most of the respiratory illnesses during the past two flu seasons were caused by other viruses and bacteria. Only 3% and 18% for a total of 21% were positive for type A or B influenza. Over the years, flu vaccines have failed dramatically. During the flu season in 04 and 05, the flu shot failed 90% of the time. During 14-15 flu season, it failed 77% of the time. And overall, the CDC publicly admitted in January of last year, just one year ago, that more than half the time, seasonal flu vaccines are less than 50% efficient. A Cochrane analysis of 50 different studies, 15 of which were funded by the vaccine industry, demonstrated that in the likely event that the included strains did not match circulating virus, there was a 2% incidence of presumed influenza in the unvaccinated population as opposed to a 1% incident in the vaccinated population. So we go from 1% in the vaccinated population to 2% in the unvaccinated population. It doesn't sound like there's massive protection happening there. There was no effect. Get this. This one's the crazy one because what they say is 200,000 hospitalizations a year, which now we're saying, well, maybe not. Maybe it's closer to 37,000. Pretty big difference, right? When you think that there's three point or 320 million people in this country, 37,000 is not a really big number, especially when you consider, um, you know, who is actually ending up in the hospital with this, people who have compromised health. But then you have to figure, well, okay, there's only 37,000, still a pretty big number, right? Well, maybe if less people were vaccinated, there would be, you know, more people in there. Well, that could be true. There's certainly some evidence of that, but there's also no actual proof that the flu shot works at all, even if they get the strains right, and we won't go into that. But here's the thing. 
if it's really just 37,000, not 200,000, and the vaccine's effective less than 50% of the time, and only like 45% of Americans are getting this thing anyway, and we now know that uh, people back when the swine flu thing hit, a Canadian study found that subjects who'd received the regular flu shot the year before were more susceptible to contracting H1N1 in 2009 and uh, 2010 flu season. So now we know that we actually had a higher incidence of the flu in people who were vaccinated the year before. And we find out that it's likely that we have a higher level of complication than we ever thought before with pregnant women getting the flu vaccine. In fact, there is a risk, according to only one study, and they always want to emphasize that, Maybe there will be a second study that disproves the first one, but the first study is a pretty good and pretty comprehensive study showing a link that uh, when women get vaccinated one year, when they're not pregnant, then get vaccinated the next year when they are pregnant, they have a significantly higher rate of miscarriage, like five times higher. Maybe that is something to keep in mind too, right? So we have two sides of the coin here. The side that says, if you get the flu, you might end up in the hospital and you might end up dead. And if you get the flu shot, that won't happen. But we have to do the math on this thing and recognize that one plus one doesn't equal two in this case. In fact, one plus one may not equal anything (laughs) when it comes to the flu shot. And yet we allow fear and propaganda to influence this and... It's very interesting. You don't have a lot of people out there talking and saying, well, don't do the flu shot. And I'm never going to be the guy. I'm not a doctor. I don't replace your doctor. I don't want to replace your doctor. I'm just the guy that wants to give you all of the facts so you can decide what you want to do. And if you think everything I'm doing is blowing smoke and that all, all I talk about is propaganda, that's fine, too. Just know there's two sides to this and you need to understand both before you decide whether or not you're going to get this shot every year because they want you to get it every single year. Whether you're pregnant, whether you're nursing, whether you're old, whether you're young, it doesn't matter. Get it every year. And over the years, every time you get it, you have a higher risk of complications that may occur due to the vaccine. And maybe you don't have that much lower risk of actually getting the flu because they still haven't proven that the thing actually works. So that's one place where fear can jump in. But why? Well, because when I was having this conversation last night, she said, well, people are dying. They need to get the flu shot. Okay, fine. People are dying of the flu. Yes, we have complications to the flu, and then people die. Some people do. Not very many, percentage-wise, but some people do. But that doesn't equate to if they had the flu shot, this wouldn't have happened. I don't know how many of those people had the flu shot and still got the flu and still died because those numbers don't get publicized that much. So anyway, there's step number one when it comes to fear. What about some other things that might happen with fear? Well, when I was a young lad, (laughs) I guess I was technically an adult, but I had my baby girl. And uh, this is 20 years ago, almost 21 years ago. I happened to be married to the time at the time, uh, to a woman who's a wonderful person. We're not married anymore. Wonderful person, very caring, 
very concerned about our children's health. And I would say maybe just a touch paranoid. Maybe. (laughs) If you ask her kids, they'll say, yeah, very much so. But regardless, she'd heard things. She'd heard things. She'd heard that if a kid gets strep throat, it can lead to meningitis. And if she gets meningitis, she'll die within like a day or two. If you go to WebMD and you read about meningitis, you're like, holy crap, I don't ever want that. That's horrible because it's going to be misdiagnosed as something else. And then when they finally figure out it's meningitis, it's too late and I got brain damage or I'm dead. So what do we do? Well, if a child gets strep throat because they can end up with meningitis, we have to use antibiotics every single time. It's too flipping scary. Oh, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Because maybe strep doesn't end up in meningitis. I dug around a lot last night trying to figure out if there was any truth in that statement. And what I found was a bunch of places that said that flu might end up in meningitis because meningitis is a, uh, or not flu, sorry, strep, streptococcus. Because meningitis is mostly, most often caused by streptococcus, a specific strain of streptococcus. But it's not the same strain of streptococcus that causes strep throat in the vast majority of situations. So that's actually a misnomer to begin with. But somewhere, somehow, she'd heard that this leads to this and this leads to death for your kid. So, of course, she wants to treat with antibiotics because... She doesn't want a dead kid or a brain-dead kid, right? Well, that's the problem with fear. You hear stuff. You read stuff. You say, oh, well, this equals this, and so we better do that. But it's really interesting because I'm on this website last night, and it was really fascinating. It's this doc, a pediatrician, like a legit pediatrician, who's got this blog, and Here's what I'll say about this guy. I respect him immensely because he's fighting against the regular mainstream medicine approach to things in areas where he thinks they're wrong. And in other areas, he's fighting hard for where he thinks they're right. But he's not just following the company line. And so he's very pro-vaccine. Near as I can tell, all the vaccines. He's selling T-shirts about vaccination and all kinds of other stuff. And so he and I he clearly disagree in some of these areas because I'm, I've got my concerns about vaccination. Well, he doesn't clearly, but man, does he have his concerns about antibiotics for strep throat? This was such a cool article, and I'll link to it in uh, on my my Facebook page. But he talks about it, and he says. Uh, you know, he feels like ear infections are often overdiagnosed and overtreated. But guess what else? Strep throat. And I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and quote from his site, um, which I just I wrote it down here. Um, I'm going to have to find it so I can so I can give you his his site because it's it this article is really really good. But uh, he says. It's easy to make a case for not treating strep throat at all in adult patients. And although kids aren't just little adults and the evidence is a little less clear cut, pediatricians may need to back off here, too, when it comes to strep throat. He says, I know you already don't believe me or do some of my 
my patients or my mother in this case, but let me make my case, he says. Group A strep pharyngitis, which will henceforth be known as strep throat, is a sore throat caused by a type of bacteria called strep pyrogenes or pyro, pyrogenes. I'm not sure how you're supposed to pronounce that. The same organism causes other infections as well, but I'll focus on the throat. Common symptoms seen with, seen with strep throat include sore throat, fever, headache, and nausea. This disease is more common in school-aged children and teenagers than it is in adults, but rarely seen in kids under three. It's one of the most commonly treated conditions in a pediatric office. In children, about 25% of sore throats are caused by strep. Okay, so one quarter. There are a few other causes, but the vast majority of them are viral, not bacterial. If your child is diagnosed with strep throat, he'll probably be given antibiotics. But here's the secret. The antibiotics aren't really for his throat. Surprised, he says. I was too the first time I heard it. But the truth is strep throat goes away all by itself. Antibiotics can reduce the duration of symptoms by about 16 hours. (laughs) Let's go back on that. Antibiotics can reduce the duration of symptoms of strep throat by about 16 hours, okay? Less than a day. But really, don't help the throat much more than over-the-counter pain medicines do. I know what you're thinking, he says. Your child has strep throat, got antibiotics, and felt better the next day. But what would have happened if it hadn't been treated? Well, it would have gotten better three or four days after it started anyway. And by the time most parents take their kid to the doc for strep throat, they've had a sore throat for a day or two or three. It hasn't cleared. So they take them to the doc to make sure it's not strep or whatever. They find out it is strep. They put them on an antibiotic, and it would have cleared in the next day or two anyway. Because the research shows that it only reduces the duration by about 16 hours. So most parents take their kids to the doctor, like I said, a couple days after this happens, And then it's just a coincidence, according to this doctor and according to the research, that they get better from the strep throat within the next day or two because they would have probably anyway. But what do antibiotics do? We're going to talk about this a lot in the next segment where we talk about chronic infection. They keep your child from developing immunity to the infection and make it more likely for strep throat to come back, right? So strep throat can have complications. It's not just a sore throat that we worry about. Rarely, kids can get abscesses in the back of their throat. That only happens in about 0.03% of people each year, so not often, right? But the real reason that strep throat is, is, uh, or antibiotics are used for strep throat is because of rheumatic fever. How often do you hear about that? This is a problem that occurs when someone's body overreacts to a strep infection and starts attacking itself. Rheumatic fever has a number of different symptoms, but the one we worry about most is damage to the valves in the heart. It's hard to find statistics about rheumatic fever because it almost never happens. It occurs in 15 per 100,000 hospitalized children. Now, the numbers here are are really telling because when we start to really dissect the numbers about infection like we just did with the flu a little bit we realize the big numbers that are thrown out aren't really as big as they appear to be this is how this one is too this is crazy 15 per 100,000 hospitalized children in the U.S. each year it's important to note that this number includes only hospitalized children 
and that in a given year, most children are not hospitalized. In fact, 97% of children make it through the year without being hospitalized. This means that in a given year, about 4.5 out of every 1 million children get rheumatic fever, or conversely, that is, of 75 million children in the U.S., 74,999,662 of them will make it through the year without getting rheumatic fever, which means a about 338 do total. 40% of children with rheumatic fever don't have any heart involvement. So the real number we're talking about is about 200 kids per year. So when you start paring it down and recognizing what the risks are, then we start to think, okay, well, maybe getting an antibiotic every time I have strep throat not such a good idea for my child. So, true confessions time. Here's a guy who, as a child, never had an antibiotic. That's me. And as an adult, never had an antibiotic until the first time in my life. I had to have a little surgery, and I had no choice. They wouldn't let me have surgery without it. I needed the surgery. First time I'd ever had surgery. First time I'd ever had an antibiotic. Clearly not a big fan of antibiotics and have lived 45 years without one roughly. But as a young parent, very nervous about my kids. And I just kind of let my wife dictate what to do because she was scared and she had me scared. And unfortunately, I didn't take the time to research this, which would have been much more difficult because we're talking pre-internet. And so, without the internet, without Google, without WebMD and a million other blogs and websites and everything else, it was hard to know for sure. If I would have read this and dug into it, I would have said, absolutely not. Just treat this thing naturally. Strep throat's not that hard to knock naturally anyway. Just get your immune system up. You do some natural antibiotic herbs and supplements. And you don't worry about it. But both of my older children have had antibiotics because of strep throat. My younger children, no, because I knew better. So the moral of the story is simple. Every one of us, I think, has some level of fear of disease. An illness, whether it's for ourselves, for our children, grandchildren, spouses, whatever. If you're like me and one of your parents died of some horrific disease, whether it be heart disease or Parkinson's disease like my dad or Alzheimer's or whatever, then we're scared that we might end up with that thing, right? Oh my gosh, what's scarier than Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or MS or those types of things, they're all kind of scary, right? When we see someone who we love going through it and it's painful. I knew someone with ALS when I was a child and watched them week after week deteriorate. It's horrifying. But just because it happens to some people does not mean that it's going to happen to you And what we need to do is be constructive about these fears. And instead of just 
acting or reacting, we need to do what we need to do to preempt these things. Keep ourselves from getting strep throat. Keep ourselves from getting Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and things like that. Be proactive instead of reactive. Educate ourselves and do what we need to do, not out of fear, but out of knowledge so that we can take care of ourselves and our families. I can't tell you how many young parents come into my store, Vitality Nutrition, and say, hey, I don't know what to do. I feel like I don't really want to do this because I I don't like it, whether it's an antibiotic or it's the flu shot or whatever else, but I'm scared not to. I mean, I have parents literally use that verbiage. And if you've been a young parent, you know what I'm talking about. I'm scared not to. Please don't let fear dictate your health care decisions. It will, generally speaking, not serve you well. If you need more education, dig, because it's out there. You'll find it, and it's not that hard anymore. Not like it used to be. Okay, so there you go. There's your rant. Way too long. I apologize. When I come back, we're going to talk about chronic infection. Chronic infection. If you deal with sinus infections, UTIs, ear infections, you name it. There's a whole bunch of them. Uh, Things in the lungs, kidney infections, whatever it is. And you're in this vicious cycle or you know someone who is. I'm going to talk to you about how to break it. And why it might be happening when we come back. My name is Jared St. Clair. This is Vitality Radio. After decades of helping people with their nutritional supplement needs, I have observed something that seems almost universal. People seem to have a lot of products that they have experimented with. Some might have been recommended by a blogger online, others from a magazine article, and yet another by a friend or family member. Information is coming at us at a rapid pace nowadays, and everyone has an opinion. The problem is that there is only one really big wild card in health and nutrition, and that wild card is you. I know you've heard the infomercials, seen the ads, or talked to that neighbor who has that cure-all product that can do it all for your health. The problem is that supplement doesn't exist. What's right for your neighbor isn't always right for you. At Vitality Nutrition, we've been asking the right questions for years. What I mean by this is we don't just sell supplements, we consult with our clients and ask them the key questions needed to make sure we match the right supplement to the right person. If you feel better about a team approach to your health, give us a call and one of our well-educated Vitality team members will answer your questions and help you find just what it is that you need to address your health concerns naturally. You can reach us at 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. Or drop us an email, info at vitalityradiopod.com. That's info at vitalityradiopod.com. Okay, so here's the thing. I talked about fear dictating health decisions on the, on the uh, opening of this show and the rant. Now I'm going to talk about chronic infections and how we get into this vicious cycle how it happens, why it happens. Oh, and I got to give a little credit because I, I forgot to put it in my notes, but I found it during the break. This website, Chad Hayes, H-A-Y-E-S-M-D.com, demystifying pediatrics. Now, I will say, not everything he writes on here I agree with. In fact, I would anticipate I may disagree with more than I agree. Uh, 
However, I like that he's willing to buck the trend in the case of antibiotics and strep throat, antibiotics and ear infections and things like that. This guy uh, is thinking a little bit more than some of the other docs out there, and I really, really enjoyed his site. So, chadhaysmd.com. Uh, thanks for the information there, Dr. Hayes. Uh, okay, so here's the thing on uh, this chronic infection deal. Let's start with sinus infections. They're not the most common. The most common are actually urinary tract infections, so I'll finish with that. But let's talk about chronic sinus infections. I've found this to be one of the most frustrating and recurring infe- of re- the recurring infections uh, for the clients that I talk to at Vitality Nutrition. The medical approach is usually antibiotics, which is usually a horrible idea. I talked about this earlier uh, this year, or last year, I guess it was, because what we've determined is that 85% ish of sinus infections are not bacterial in nature anyway. They're either viral or fungal. In fact, Dr. Robert S. Ivker or Ivker, I'm not sure it's I-V-K-E-R, but Robert S., I'm going to say Ivker, whose website is called sinussurvival.com and has some great information on it. He says that uh, the hardest thing to swallow, especially if you have inflamed sinuses, is that if you have chronic sinusitis, or many other symptoms, the repeated rounds of past antibiotics either contributed to or caused this condition. It's a complete accident, but your doctor has probably given you antibiotics to treat your sinus condition and is doing, in doing so created a fungal overgrowth that may be making you miserable. And worst of all, antibiotics actually make fungal infections worse, not better. That's right. Your antibiotics have made your fungal sinusitis stronger, making your symptoms worse, and turning the fungus into a chronic illness. Over 90% of patients with chronic sinusitis have this harsh fungal infection, and instead of treating the illness, the good bacteria which keep the fungal condition in check have been wiped out by antibiotics. The antibiotics have actually strengthened the fungal sinusitis. What's worse is that once you get to a state of chronic recurring infections, you can get to the next medical intervention, surgery, due to polyps or deviated septum. The sad news is that typically, if your first intervention wasn't an antibiotic, then there would almost never be a need for a second intervention like surgery. I can't tell you how many times I've had people come into Vitality and say, hey, I've had multiple sinus surgeries and I still get infected. How frustrating is that? I mean, I've never had sinus surgery. It's got to be miserable. It seems like it would be. I don't know. But the point of the matter is, why are we still treating sinus infections with antibiotics? Why? Oh, why? When we know, and this is not, this is not, you know, herbal guy, on the radio telling you that this doesn't work, there are doctors, the the CDC itself, who are saying, we need to not use antibiotics and sinus infections the vast majority of the time. And they've given doctors very specific directions and directives on how to do this, how to know when you do or you don't use an antibiotic for a sinus infection, but as I've said before, oftentimes the patient gets what the patient wants and the patient wants an antibiotic and the doctor gives them the antibiotic, even though the doctor 
probably knows, and if he doesn't or she doesn't, absolutely should not be a doctor, (laughs) that the vast majority of sinus infections can't be treated with an antibiotic, at least not effectively. And then we set ourselves up for the vicious cycle, infection, antibiotic, recurring infection, infection, my heavens, my words, antibiotic, recurring infection, another antibiotic, recurring infection, another antibiotic. If you're caught in this trap, if you're in the cycle, you can break free. If you are not in the cycle, then listen up because you can get there real quick. The next time you have a UTI or sinus infection or an ear infection or strep or pneumonia or bronchitis or whatever it is, I'm not saying that antibiotics shouldn't be used for any of those things. In some cases, they should. But if you do use an antibiotic, you better know that you need to work hard to get yourself back to where you were before you started. This is not an easy thing. Depending on the research you read, it might take six months of high-dose probiotics to get back to where you were before just seven days on amoxicillin. Seven days. Takes six months to get back to start to the starting point. And it doesn't just happen on its own. It only happens if you're proactively boosting yourself back up. In a few minutes, I'm going to talk about a faster, better way to boost yourself back up than just a typical anti- or probiotic. But regardless, Dr. Ivker, or Ivker, and I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce his name. He recommends, instead of antibiotics for fungal infections, a very powerful form of garlic, vitamin C, and nasal irrigation. Pretty old school stuff, but he says it works better because it boosts the overall immune response. So no matter what's going on in there, even if it is bacterial, which it probably isn't, your body will fight harder against that. And it'll fight hard against viruses, and it'll fight hard against fungal things instead of only against a bacterial thing that it probably isn't in the first place. Washing that stuff out, no matter what it is, bacterial, viral, or fungal, is a really good idea. And so I completely concur with what Dr. Ivker says. But I would also say that colloidal silver as a nasal spray is phenomenal for this. I can't tell you how many lives it's changed for chronic sinus infections. Why? Because there's plenty of evidence that, and, and, and we're talking actual clinical studies showing that silver and fungus do not live well together. So if you have a fungal thing, which Dr. Ivker says, 85% of the time, that's what's going on in your sinuses. Then putting some silver up there, putting it in your nasal wash, using it as a nasal spray, whatever, uh, will make it a very inhospitable place for the back or for the fungus to continue to grow. Also, vitamin C. Uh, if you're going to use vitamin C for it, he recommends about 3,000 milligrams a day. You can certainly do more than that in short term, uh, safely and effectively. And I recommend something called Inner C, which is the best, not to be mistaken for emergency, which is now one of the worst quality vitamin C's on the market ever since they got bought out by Pfizer, of all people. But inner C, little packets of vitamin C, just like the emergency, but the real stuff 
that really, really works. Phenomenal stuff. And of course, I love Kyola garlic if you're going to use garlic here. But the colloidal silver in particular, absolutely love for this stuff. Okay, so what about UTIs? According to LifeExtension.com, urinary tract infections are the most common form of bacterial infection, accounting for 7 million office visits a year. 7 million! Holy smokes! 1 million emergency room visits and 100,000 hospitalizations each year. That's more than the flu! At an estimated annual cost of $1.6 billion to the American public. One-third of all women will contract a UTI by the age of 24 and half by the age of 40. Once a woman has contracted a UTI, her risk of recurrence, depending on who you ask, is anywhere from 20 to 50%. Why is that so high? Why is that so high? Why is it that if you get a UTI, like a third of women in America do by the time they're 24 years old, that you have a 20 to 50% chance of getting another one. And why is it that once you've had multiple UTIs, you have about a 50% chance of continuing to get more, of becoming chronic, which is basically considered three or more a year or two or more in a six-month period? Why are those numbers so blasted high? Well, it's so simple. It's so simple. Our body wants to fight infection. It is designed to do just that. And it does that through one primary means, and that is good bacteria fighting bad bacteria. Antibiotics kill all bacteria, and therefore we set ourselves up for a recurring infection because if we were weak enough to get one in the first place, immune-wise, if we were weak enough to get one in the first place, we only become weaker with every antibiotic round that we do. And therefore, we create more susceptibility. It's not hard to figure this out. This is pretty easy to understand, I think. And yet, we do it all the time. These poor ladies, like I said, one, I think, in her mid-60s, another 80 years old, come into Vitality last week. One, Actually, I mean, it was literally back-to-back, which is why it hit me so hard. One was on the phone, and then a half an hour later, one came in, and they both said the same thing. I can't Stop getting these flipping UTIs. What do I do? I'm sick of antibiotics. They don't work, or if they do work, I get one again in a month. And then one of them told me, and she's 80 years old, that her doc put her on Cipro for it. Cipro, that stuff is flipping dynamite to your body. It's horrible. Shouldn't be used except in the most extreme cases. It's still utilized way too much in this country. I'm not even sure if it should be legal at all. But regardless, these antibiotics are creating issues for people. Why are we going on antibiotics? Why do we get a UTI at 18 years old, 15 years old, 3 years old, whatever, mostly in women but sometimes in men, and we have this perfectly wonderful, wonderful thing called D-mannose. It's a natural sugar that your body can barely even absorb, so it doesn't even spike your blood sugar levels. And in 24 to 48 hours, in 90% of cases, it wipes it out, wipes out the UTI completely. Because what is a UTI? It's, it's bacteria that shouldn't be in a bacteria-free zone, your urinary tract. And in 90% of the time, it's E. coli. And D-mannose, which is over-the-counter, completely safe, not particularly expensive, it's like 30 bucks a bottle, for a pretty decent supply. 
D-mannose binds to E. coli and pulls it right out of the urinary tract so that it can't hang on anymore. And in 24 to 48 hours, it wipes out 90% of these infections. That's clinically proven. That's a phenomenal result for something that does no harm whatsoever, that does not hurt your good bacteria, that does not make you more susceptible next time. And now we know this, that two grams of D-mannose, that's half, that's, or sorry, one teaspoon or four capsules, and I just recommend the powder because it tastes good. It's easy. But two grams a day for people that have chronic urinary tract infections, they go from a 60% recurrence to a 15% recurrence over a six-month period in clinical trials. From a 60% to a 15%, that's a 75% reduction in recurring infection by simply taking a couple of grams of a really good-tasting little sugar every day instead of an antibiotic. How easy is that? Come on. But why aren't doctors talking about it? Why are they not being educated on it? Why is this like this amazing little secret that not enough people know about? Well, there's a drug company trying to make a synthetic version of D-mannose right now. Oh, imagine that. Let's patent this stuff and charge a fortune for it instead of just leaving it legal and safe and cheap so that people can knock this stuff out. Cranberry capsules, particularly a cranberry called Cran Max, phenomenal stuff, along with D-mannose, ups your odds even more. And just keep in mind, again, I'm not a doctor. I can't replace, and nor do I want to replace their advice. Just giving you an alternative to look at. Because urinary tract infections can become bad, right? They can become bladder infections, kidney infections. They can get worse. So if, if within 48 hours on D-mannose, you haven't seen a result, then you probably are one of the few people that doesn't respond to D-mannose or you don't have E. coli. You've got some other bacteria in there. And then that's when an antibiotic might make some sense. Talk to your doctor. See what he or she thinks. But here's the biggest thing. If you are caught in this trap, if you're in the vicious cycle, if you can't get rid of these flipping, annoying, frustrating, health-compromising infections, you need to be on a real probiotic that really works and there's a product that i am in love with it's not mine i wish it were oh how i wish it were such an amazing product called just thrive that can get you back to where you need to be you can be someone who does not no longer suffers from chronic infections if you get your body's natural defenses up just Thrive is unique among probiotics, completely unique among probiotics, because it survives the stomach completely. It can be taken with an antibiotic, and the antibiotic can't kill it. You can put it in your oven at 399 degrees, and it won't die. This stuff is amazing, and there's nothing like it in the world. It can be taken on an empty stomach. It can be taken with food. It's one capsule per day. It has clinical studies that are mind-blowing how effective this stuff is. For everything from getting your immune system up to stopping leaky gut. If you are chronic, you, in my opinion, ought to be on Just Thrive Probiotic one a day for six months. Minimum. That sounds like a lot, I know. But is it worth it if it works? Absolutely. And if you have chronic UTIs, please, D-mannose, two grams a day, and Just Thrive, just do it. 
Get away from the cycle. Get off these flipping antibiotics that are probably just making things worse. Break the cycle. Get your health back. That's how you do it. If you have more questions, you call us, 801-292-6662. There's plenty of evidence supporting what I'm saying and recommending. But remember that I do not replace the opinion of your doctor. So make sure that he or she is involved as well and knows what you're doing. Okay, so the last thing, I usually cut to another break. I just don't have time. I've been ranting too much. It's 9.54, for heaven's sake. It's 9.55 now. So we're going to talk about something I promised at the very beginning of the show. I was going to save you money today. I'm going to ask you to spend $10 to save more. Probably in the first two weeks, okay, of having these little blue things in your kitchen, I'm going to save you more than they cost you, that 10 bucks. Let me just tell you what they are. They're called Blue Apple, and they are awesome. For 10 bucks, you get two of these little blue apples. They have these little packets of zeolite in them is what it's called. And this stuff absorbs ethylene gas. So ethylene gas is given off naturally by fruits and vegetables as a signaling mechanism in order to coordinate uniform ripening. However, once concentrated in your refrigerator or other storage areas, the fruit bowl on your counter or whatever, the presence of ethylene gas continues to speed up ripening and then hasten spoilage. The blue apple is designed to provide effective ethylene gas absorption for three months in a typical home refrigerator, produce bin, or storage container. The active ingredient does not wear out, but continues to absorb the ethylene gas until it has reached its capacity. Once your blue apples run out after three months, which you can even sign up with blueapple.com, to have them remind you every three months to change it, or you'll know when your fruit starts to ripen too quickly again. Then you can buy a year's supply for 10 bucks. I'm telling you right now, there is shame in all of us when we dig into our refrigerator and take out a soggy bag of spinach leaves or lettuce or a four-pound container of strawberries or two pounds of grapes that have gone bad before their time, so to speak, right? Because we all want to save money eating healthy, and we all want to eat healthy. Well, I don't know if we all want to eat healthy, but if you're listening to Vitality Radio, it's safe to assume you probably want to eat healthy. And my son and I were talking about this just a couple weeks ago. He said, Dad, I would eat way healthier if we had this stuff on hand. And I said, then let's have it on hand. And then a week or so later, he said, you know what? Since we brought in more fruits and veggies, I'm eating more fruits and veggies. And I said, sweet, let's do it. And you know what? My blue apples ran out. (laughs) So they started ripening too quickly. So I brought home more. But let me tell you, blue apple is like a miracle. And I swear to you, I'm not kidding. I'm not over-exaggerating. You can put a blue apple, just a little plastic apple that happens to be blue, in your fruit basket with your bananas or your oranges or apples or whatever it is, and on average, it'll keep them three times longer than they would on their own. You can put it in your vegetable drawer or your fruit drawer in your fridge, same story. So when you see the 99-cent grapes and you're like, I'm going to grab two bags of grapes, they're only 99 cents a pound. But then the back of your mind, you're like, ah, crap, one, one bag is going to go bad anyway. I can't buy two bags. You can. 
if you have the Blue Apple. And I'm not exaggerating. It's 100% guaranteed. If these things don't work for you, I'll give you your money back. For $9.99, you get two, one for each drawer in your fridge. Spend another 10 bucks and get some for your counter if you want. Buy the fridge pack, or the, yeah, the, I can't what they call it, the annual pack or something. It gives you a year's supply plus the two blue apples to put them in. Amazing stuff. Come ask questions if you have them at Vitality. The blue apple is legit. I challenge you. Buy more fresh produce. Use your blue apples, and you'll waste less fresh produce. You'll save yourself money. As Bill Burr says, they're throwing this stuff at you at the grocery store. Produce isn't that expensive. You just waste so dang much of it, right? So don't waste it anymore. Get a blue apple. Get two blue apples. Okay, I got to run. It's almost 10 o'clock. It's always a pleasure bringing this show to you. Catch us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Vitality Radio. Find our new website, vitalitynutrition.com, or just come by Vitality Nutrition at 107 South, 500 West, or give us a call, 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. Thank you so much for lending me your ear. If you like what you hear, go tell somebody that you listen to me, Jared St. Clair, on Vitality Radio. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to the Vitality Radio Podcast. Enjoy your week. In the meantime, Jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it. Vitality Radio is researched and written by Jared St. Clair, produced by Elizabeth Joy Windham, with very limited help from Jared. Our awesome music is by Brian Bob Young. Support Vitality Radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast source. Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Vitality Radio. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast has not been evaluated by the FDA. This podcast is provided with the understanding that the information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a medical professional. Thank you.